This is The Every Lawyer, presented by the Canadian Bar Association. Hello, and welcome to Conversations with the President, a podcast series about diversity and inclusivity in the legal profession. I'm Canadian Bar Association President Ray Adlington. I'm a cisgendered white man who became a successful lawyer without having to face discrimination based upon my gender identity, race, color, or sexual orientation. This podcast is my way of learning about those who have had to face those kinds of obstacles and maybe identifying ways the CBA can help the profession move toward a more inclusive future. In this episode, I'll be talking with two people about their experiences as racialized lawyers in the Canadian legal profession. Charlene Theodore is a young lawyer on the move. 14 years after joining the CBA as a student member, and 10 years after being called to the Bar in Ontario, she's currently the second vice president of the Ontario Bar Association. That makes her a rarity. Not only is the number of female OBA presidents still in the single digits, she will be the first black woman to lead the Ontario branch. She's also the treasurer of the Canadian Association of Black Lawyers, and she recently received the Lexbird Zenith Award for championing the advancement of women in the legal profession. Her paying job is as counsel for the Ontario English Catholic Teachers Association, but from the sounds of things, that's not her full-time occupation. Welcome to the podcast, Charlene. Thank you. Thanks so much for having me. One of the reasons I'm doing this podcast series is to get people who did not have the same level of privilege that I enjoyed to talk about their path to the profession. And I'm wondering what brought you to the law? I have a, a, you know, I guess as everybody does, a bit of a unique story. I first thought about being a lawyer when I was in high school, when I was 16. And uh, I read a book about Stephen Trescott, um, who was wrongfully convicted of a murder and um, uh, sentenced to prison, sentenced to hang at the time. It's when we had hanging wow. uh, on the book in Canada. And so a kind of the idea kind of percolated my mind in high school. And after uh, going through university, I actually got in a really serious car accident um, when I was in school. And after the accident, I just kind of took a few years off, you know, was in my 20s, started working, uh, had a career and kind of put it to the back of my mind. And then at some point in time, it was like, you know what, this is something that I've always wanted to do. And I started researching how to apply to law school as a mature student. That's how I ended up at Dalhousie, Dalhousie University Faculty of Law. Well, good for you. Virtually all of the research we've done on diversity in the legal profession puts women of color at the very bottom of the power hierarchy. Has that affected your career choices? Um, no, it, it really hasn't. Um, I think maybe what you're inquiring about is the fact that I've never worked in a firm. I've just always, uh, I worked for a specialty legal aid clinic, um, the African Canadian Legal Clinic, that's where I articled, um, and then worked there for a while and then went directly in-house, um, in-house uh, labor counsel. And so the way that Black women um, are perceived and their unique challenges in this profession was not the reason why I have stayed away from the traditional firm structure. I went after what was interesting to me and opportunities that I wanted to pursue. Um, and it was, I think, on my end, required a little bit more courage to not kind of follow um, what seems like a predetermined path when you go to law school, saying, OK, you got to do this, go to a firm, et cetera, et cetera. You can't do anything. That being said, in any work environment, whether you're in a firm or you're working in-house or even working at the African Canadian Legal Clinic, you're not only dealing with, you know, black lawyers, your counsel on the other side and just kind of navigating um, in whatever space you are professionally, you're still having similar experiences that black women have. So that experience um, crosses over 
whether you're uh, working for legal aid or you're working for the public sector, you're working for a firm or you're working in-house. What have your experiences been as a black woman working in the legal profession? Well, there's a lot of commonalities with the the complaints that women um, of all races are are vocalizing uh, uh, in the profession, right? And so, um, I don't have children, but I've had many friends that have had to make difficult choices in terms of their career and raising families. Um, you know, being taken seriously in the workplace. You know, uh, uh, being approached by men. Um, in a suggestive way uh, when you're trying to maintain a business relationship. Um, But on top of all that, and that's really getting to the root of what we call intersectionality, you also can't avoid just racism, right? So it's layered on top of that. And so unlike someone who, a woman who isn't racialized, Uh, in the workplace, you may not necessarily have a female ally to support and assist you. Um, And so your experiences with men in the workplace may be based on your gender and or your race. Um, And your experiences with women in the workplace um, may be negative based on your race as well, even though you may have common, common experiences as women. Absolutely. And I'm grateful that you've chosen the Ontario Bar Association and by extension the CBA as part of the group that you're surrounding yourself with so you can serve as such a role model. Uh, How important is it for you to be a member of and be working with the Canadian Association of Black Lawyers? I think it's critical. Um, I mean, I think that as lawyers, whether it's the Canadian Association of Black Lawyers, the OBA, you know, FACL, SABA, I think it really is important to um, given the high stress nature of our work and the, the issues that racialized lawyers and female lawyers have to deal with on top of those issues, it really is important to establish several different communities, right? So you'll have perhaps kind of the your community in common at work, people that are trusted allies for you at work that you can turn to for professional or maybe sometimes even personal advice. Um, but you also need to have people outside of your workplace that you can um, have as in terms of support or encouragement or guidance. Right. And, you know, or, exactly, organizations like Cable really are a plat. That's really what the core of their platform is. Aside from advocacy, it really is family and community. So it is, I think it really is very important. How many, how many chapters does Cable have and where are they located across the country? Well, Cable is is uh, really growing. It was always intended to be a national organization, um, uh, but now we've really expanded in terms of um, our base of operations going beyond Toronto. Uh, we have a chapter out in BC, a chapter in Ottawa, um, which is helping us really um, uh, become even more engaged in advocacy on behalf of uh, Black Canadians and Black lawyers um, federally, and we have a um, a chapter out in Nova Scotia, and we're actually having our uh, annual conference and gala for the first time. It's not going to be in Toronto this year. It's uh, it's going to be in Nova Scotia. I'm really excited about it. Very good. I'm glad to hear that. This May, the Canadian Bar Association is presenting our first ever leadership boot camp for racialized lawyers. How meaningful is this event for you? Uh, it's meaningful in so many different ways. So number one, uh, I support Vivian Salmon, who I've known um, before. She became uh, vice president of the CBA. I've known her just, you know, kind of as a black female lawyer, 
uh, working with her together through the OBA. Um, for the, the role that she's taking on is significant, being the first Black female president of the CBA. Um, we obviously have something in common since I'll be the first Black female president of the OBA. So yes. we really do support each other in our roles. Um, and I'm on the planning committee supporting her in planning this conference and working with her and the CBA staff um, to really bring it to life. I think it's really important to provide a forum and some really, I know that what Vivine's vision is to really bring people together across the country and provide some practical strategies and tools that you can use um, in all aspects of your career to help your career growth. It really is about leadership and it really is about training um, and really address the things that people have questions about. You know, there are some sticky questions that are more about your soft skills, executive presence, leadership, um, you know, whether it's, you know, climbing the proverbial ladder that sometimes people may not know who to ask about it. It's not a legal question. It's not a question on the file. You may want to get some feedback from other people other than maybe your direct mentors. Um, and uh, if we want to see uh, more diversity in our leadership in this profession, we've got to invest the training and the time in into the diverse leaders of tomorrow. So I'm really excited about it. And for those of our listeners who might be interested in attending, can you give us a quick preview of uh, the speakers they might see that day? I can. So we have, I think, really uh, the cream of the crop um, uh, in terms of speakers and uh, some people that um, I've met and encountered personally, and Vivian has as well, that you may not have seen in some of these forums before, and some people that are really known for being key, really the, the people that you want to get at your conference. Um, so Ritu Basen is um, going to be one of our uh, keynote speakers. Uh, Fernando Garcia, who's an excellent uh, presenter and really uh, t- gives a lot of his time to help mentor and coach uh, younger lawyers of color. Kiki Lawal, um, who is a really dynamic woman. She's legal counsel at Interact. Uh, Michelle Henry, uh, one of the few Black female partners on Bay Street. Um, Harry Laform, uh, Paul Segill, uh, Wendy Lopez, another uh, legal counsel is kind of in the same industry I am, Justice Germal Gill, it's uh, Julia Shindoy. It's going to be a really, really good faculty. Well, I'm really, I'm looking forward to the event because I truly believe that one of the things that will enhance diversity in our legal profession is changing the face of the leadership of our law organizations. I couldn't agree more. And I, what I think is so dynamic about this conference is that we've got speakers from the public sector, private sector, different kind of areas of practice, partners, associates. And I think that because we've got such a really dynamic cross-section, no matter where you want to go in your career as a, a younger or newer racialized lawyer, you'll be able to pick up just real nuggets of wisdom and knowledge from everybody's story. I just want to change gears for a bit here. Um, You mentioned in an interview that the thing you're most proud of is coming through a bout of severe depression and anxiety in your third year of law school. This is one of the many things we have in common. The uh, difference is yours was in your third year of law school, mine was in my 20th year of practice. Mental health issues are rarely discussed in this profession. In fact, you mentioned in the interview that you've never discussed it publicly before. How did you make it through, and what do you think we can do in the profession to destigmatize mental health issues? 
Well, um, I'm uh, pleased and surprised to have you ask me that question. When I did that interview um, and I wrote kind of I wrote my responses, it's for a great series by Erin Cowling, where she interviews different women in law. Yeah, that was my first time kind of writing it down and quote unquote, I guess, saying it out loud. And there was no real reactions. Yeah, maybe nobody read it or maybe nobody noticed what I said, but somebody was paying attention. So thanks for asking me about it. Um, I would say, how did I get through? So uh, I agree with everything you're saying. It's if we're not at a crisis point in our profession in terms of dealing dealing with this, we're almost there. Okay. Yes, totally. And yeah, and I I can't imagine going through what I went through um, in my 20th year of practice like you did. Uh, The one saving grace, I guess, is that I got it out of the way early. You know, I'm just really glad I was able to graduate an article and get my career started. I couldn't have made it it through without the, uh, a mentor, a professor at Dow that really just kind of held my hand through the process. Uh, one of the things I think for me personally was kind of being on the other side of the country, away from my family, away from all your support systems. Um, and when you're having some of these issues in law school, it's not something that you feel you can um, be open about. Law school is such a fishbowl, right? Yeah. Everybody else there is kind of just really struggling to get by. Um, and so had it not been for that professor, um, you know, I think my life would have turned out very different. I may not have finished law school. And uh, so just having that one person that, um, quite frankly, went well above and beyond their duties as a professor to really help me um, navigate my way through finishing law school when I was quite ill um, was, was really helpful. Um, the challenge, I think, for me starting articling after kind of coming, just really kind of coming off this bout of depression, moving back to Toronto, um, but again, thank God I live in a country that has health care and great doctors and also having a doctor that really understood where I was coming from and uh, was supportive of me getting through articling and getting my career started was also really, really quite helpful. Yes. Well, I'm glad to hear that you are uh, better now. And uh, certainly if there are ever any relapses, please know that we're all here. What do you think we in the CBA and organizations like Cable can do to destigmatize mental illness in our profession? Um, I think that it's um, so there's a broader stigma, right? Talking about mental illness, our profession. But within kind of the broader stigma, there are different kind of communities that have their own specific stigma. So the stigma um associated with mental health mental health treatment um within the black community may be very different than the stigma associated with addressing those issues if you are um you know a white female lawyer and you're a parent hmm. right um and so providing a platform for people that have kind of those communities in common to talk about um, and to give them their support, right, I think is important. I think what um, I'm sure uh, you as well as I um, really admire um, Orlando, who I think was one of the key figures in starting this discussion. And what he did was so powerful. But if 
Black lawyers are having specific issues linked to our kind of cultural background, talking about mental health issues, I think one of the best things you can do is provide a platform specifically for that community. So if there is a Black lawyer that is can really speak to those issues, that has maybe the same background, providing just so like not maybe a support group, but communities in common that to speak to your specific concerns around addressing that issue, as well as promoting people like Orlando and the Mindful Lawyer series that the OBA offers, which I think is amazing and great. And, um, you know, we've got these great services now through Homewood. I don't know if people realize the value of being able to, able to access those services. Uh, having worked as a lawyer for um, when I, before I was in education, I was in healthcare and Homewood was a place that many of my clients would be at um, uh, in order to get treatment and return back to work, you know, after dealing with mental illness and addiction. And it's one of, it's literally the best, um, if not one of the best facilities. Um, so for us to have access through that, through our member, our membership support program uh, is, is a gift. Well, thank you very much, Charlene, for joining me here today. Uh, it's been a very insightful conversation and I appreciate you taking the time. Thank you. Well, it's always great talking with you. Um, and thank you so much for having me. My next guest is David Curry, a Crown Attorney in Digby, Nova Scotia, about a half hour drive from the community of Lakeel, where he grew up. David studied sociology and social anthropology at Dalhousie University before continuing on to the Schulich School of Law at age 27 as a member of the school's Indigenous Black and Mi'kmaq program. He articled Nova Scotia Legal Aid, and then, after being called to the bar in 2011, worked with legal aid societies in both Ontario and Yarmouth before being appointed to his current job. David, you've described yourself as being from a marginalized community as a black and Mi'kmaq man and noted that past injustices like the conviction of Donald Marshall Jr., a Nova Scotia Mi'kmaq man who was imprisoned for 11 years for a crime he didn't commit, influenced your decision to become a lawyer. I'd appreciate if you could expand a bit on that. Sure. So I'm from uh, the uh, African Nova Scotian community in Lakeel, Nova Scotia. Uh, which is in the Annapolis Valley, and my mother is from the Ilsacook uh, First Nations, Bear River First Nations in, uh, in Bear River, which those two uh, communities are very close uh, geographically. So obviously, um, coming up through uh, being raised in those communities um, has influenced uh, my lived experience. Of course. Which obviously um, flowed into uh, my decision to practice law, and obviously uh, seeing what happened uh, with the Marshall the well-known Marshall incident here in the province, as well as many other incidents that have been unrecorded, certainly has provided a huge motivational base for me personally um, to want to tackle some of these uh, long-standing issues and, and, and get involved. So what is it you are hoping to achieve over the course of your career? I'm not looking for objectives. What, 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 I guess at the end of the day, what I, what I want to do is, is provide a face for folks that are from marginalized communities. So when they are going through the, the criminal justice system, they see somebody that looks like them, um, has shared some of their experiences. Just that experience alone, I think, is, 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 is something that uh, is of value to, to contribute to, to the profession and, and also to, uh, um, to the community's um, uh, standpoint. Uh, yes. so, so ultimately, I just want to contribute in some positive way. And I think, uh, you know, at least your presence is a, is a big part of that. Yes, and I, and I know that Nova Scotia recently appointed its first black superior court judge uh, just this past year, and I'm, I'm wondering if you could tell me what that means to you. It means uh, a lot of things to me, and I, and I think, uh, and obviously I just speak for myself, but I think it also means a lot for our community. Um, 
what it is is a barrier that uh, in every now and again a barrier will, will start to fall um, and that's what it means there's a barrier that's fell um, there's the first one it is also troubling though that it's 2019 before the first um, person from the African Nova Scotia community was appointed at that level so so we've seen a lot of that in the recent in the last two years or so when I first started with the Crown Prosecutor's Office in uh, 2017 uh, there were about three black lawyers um, that practiced uh, in the crown work. And um, since then, that number's uh, doubled. Excellent. Um, also, uh, judges at the provincial court, we've seen a number of um, appointments there as well uh, in the last couple of years. So, so, so our profession is becoming more diverse, um, certainly with those appointments. As a result of the Marshall Report in 1989, the Dalhousie Law School established the Indigenous Black and Mi'kmaq Initiative and the Barrister Society set up a permanent standing racial equality committee, still the only one of its kind in the country. While the number of black and Aboriginal lawyers in the province is growing, our own numbers within Nova Scotia show, and quoting from the 2017 report of the Nova Scotia Barrister Society, that there are 63 self-identified black lawyers in the province, but only 23 work in private law firms, and only six of them are partners. The majority, like you, work in the public sector, and many are sole practitioners. I'm wondering if you understand why that is, that more... Uh, black lawyers in the province are in the public sector versus private practice? Well, I think uh, just historically, the, there's certain levels of hostility that I think have, uh, that are there, that, that, are, that are still present in the, in the profession. Coming from marginalized communities, there's more protection when you work with government than there is in, in the private sector. Yes. Um, and so I think that speaks for some of it, but, but it's all, I think it's a very complex question. It's a great question, um, and there's many facets to it, but, but that's... From my perspective, I would say one of the thing, one of the uh, uh, parts of that is is there it is more protection, but it, it, there's also um, now there's pressure always to conform um, when you come from a marginalized community in, into this profession, um, and I and I would uh, think that 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 pressure must be um, more pressure uh, for those that uh, that are in private practice. Yes, one of my earlier guests, Rithu Basin, spoke about presenting yourself authentically in work and how empowering that is. And I'm wondering what your experience has been in that regard about pressures to conform and your ability to be authentic in your work environment. Well, it's always a balancing act, right? It's, and it's, it's, it's something you have to navigate every day, and it's very difficult. There's a lot of extra pressure that's put on people in minority communities because of that of course so so it's there's, there's always this balancing act but i have tr i've tried and, and it starts in law school it's not necessarily when once you become a lawyer i think that pressure starts in law school and builds from there um certainly to, to conform um personally i think uh, it's important for folks from marginalized communities to try to keep as much of their identity as possible you know to keep change to a minimum um and, and to fight against uh, conforming. And so right. I try to do that in, in many different ways and facets, but it obviously is a, is a continual pressure that causes a lot of, uh, a lot of uh, thought. I've certainly resisted conformity over the course of my career as well. I'm wondering what people like me can do to make the environments more welcoming for marginalized communities so that individuals can feel less of a burden to conform and be able to present themselves more authentically in the work environment? It's a great question. I, I think at the end of the day, the uh, it, it's it's the dominant culture who have put uh, the barriers in place uh, that exist today and have existed throughout the history of, uh, of our uh, profession. And um, so, so I think ultimately the, the, um, 
the change has to come from that level. At minimum, should be led at that level, but obviously there's some difficulty in having that take place. But um, there has to be some self, uh, self-reflection, self-analyzing um, that, that needs to be done for leaders or decision makers around what they can do. And so I think part of it is is having conversation. Right. Because a lot of times these, these issues are not, it's, it's never okay to bring them up or to speak about them. Um, and we, even when you do, there's a number of challenges that come with that. So I think uh, uh, having the discussions is the first uh, start, starting point and a lot of self-reflection from those that, uh, that are decision makers. Fair. Just to change gears a bit, our British Columbia branch recently had a project called But I Was Wearing a Suit. They spoke with Indigenous lawyers who shared the hurdles they had to overcome after law school, such as being mistaken for their clients, being disrespected by court staff, not being allowed into court libraries after hours. Most of them did so anonymously, but I'd appreciate hearing your perspective. Have you ever been mistaken for the defendant in court? (laughs) Well, um, that's a very interesting question, and I think uh, what I would say to that is that I don't feel like I've ever, uh, you know, somebody has said something to me saying that I'm thinking that I'm uh, someone who is a defendant in a case. But you often, you feel you feel certain things all the time, and certainly you feel like uh, sediment is certainly there. So there hasn't been something overtly where I felt that way, but I can certainly um, see scenario. I've certainly seen and experienced uh, scenarios that, um, that uh, implicitly, at least, uh, that assumption sometimes is made. But I'm, I practice mostly in rural Nova Scotia, where uh, most of the justice partners are familiar uh, with uh, with the lawyers that are that are there, and so there's less uh, likelihood uh, of that happening um, uh, in terms of uh, my day to day practice. But but I certainly uh, in early days um, can can understand uh, uh, that experience and sentiment. So in that respect, do you feel it's easier for a member of a marginalized community such as yourself to practice in a rural environment? as compared to a larger urban center? Well, they both come with advantages and disadvantages. And so they're, they're, I don't know if I necessarily would say it's easier, but I would say it's different. And, um, and, and one of the ways that it is uh, different in a positive way is that uh, there is a lot of familiarity uh, with you uh, when you're certainly, uh, when you look like I do and uh, you're practicing in an area. Uh, but to even generally, um, the justice st- uh, stakeholders are all familiar with the lawyers that, uh, that come and go in a rural setting more so than they are in an in a urban setting. But I practice in, in right. both settings in, in the city as well as uh, in rural areas. Um, at the end of the day, there are advantages and disadvantages. I wouldn't necessarily say it's easier because it's difficult no matter how you slice it. There's, it just the difficulty comes in different ways. Uh, I know in June that you took part in an engagement session that brought judges from Nova Scotia courts together with members of the province's black community. I'd like to understand uh, what those types of sessions achieve and what advice you could give to our colleagues across the country who are considering organizing similar sessions. Well, I think they achieve they achieve a lot if they're sustained. I mean, uh, connecting with the community to say we see you, um, we understand that there are differences, um, and we want to acknowledge that and genuinely reach out uh, to see what we can do to make this relationship better um, is always a great starting point. And um, so, um, I'm proud of of the judiciary in Nova Scotia who have uh, started to take those steps. Um, you know. It has to be sustained, though, institutionally, so that uh, um, you know some of the, the habits of the past don't get repeated. Um, and and it's also 
you know, if it's sustained, then then that would send the message to the community that this is something that uh, we're not, you know, just doing on a one one off basis, but we're going to in- intertwine this with our system to make our system better. Um, and so uh, much work has to be done to prove that in my in my view. But certainly it's a it's a great starting point and something um, that I'm proud of as a as a Nova Scotian. And I, and I think all Nova Scotians should be proud of these problems uh, that exist in our system with uh, uh, the disconnect between marginalized communities and the system itself obviously um, exists across the country and, and uh, much work needs to be done. It's a great first step, um, and in my view, a mandatory first step to, to reconciling some of these historical um, uh, barriers that have existed. And uh, so I, I certainly would encourage uh, all jurisdictions to look at the example that's been set here uh, and see uh, what ways would work in their jurisdictions to uh, to uh, to carry that initiative forward in a way that's going to make a meaningful difference to the community. Um, so I certainly would encourage them to do that. My final question for you is, what steps can you and I take today to ensure that our next generation of colleagues are not having this similar conversation in 20 years' time? Yeah, that's another great question because some of the most of the hurdles that we're dealing with and discussing uh, are the same hurdles that were there in the, in the 50s and 60s and, and, and before that. Um, and we're still dealing with these issues in, in 2019. Um, and so the, that's a great question in terms of what can be done so that we can make a difference moving forward. I think the first thing is to have honest dialogue around these problems existing. Um, and there has to be safe places for people to do that because oftentimes when people of color uh, speak up about these issues, especially in the legal profession, there's nothing but neg- negative uh, consequences for that. Um, and that's part of how the systems continue. So the, uh, there has to be safe dialogue uh, that starts around having honest discussions about the realities that exist. Um, and, and then a, 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 a community uh, response to that. And when I say that, I mean a professional legal community response to that, from, from, led by those that are from marginalized communities, but certainly supported uh, by, uh, you know, the, the dominant culture. Um, and, and together creating ways, um, uh, you know, to get out of the cycle that, that, that's been created. Um, and to move forward in a, in a positive way so that these issues uh, we're not still talking about uh, down the road. Yes, well, I hope that sometime when we're back in Nova Scotia together that we can get together for dinner and continue the conversation. It sounds great. Thank you very much. This has been very informative, and I appreciate you taking the time to join me here today. Thank you. Look forward to it. Take care. Charlene Theodore and David Curry are young lawyers hoping to change the face of the law in their communities. Despite the work of those who came before them, they're both pioneers in their own way, seeking to find the equality and access to justice that the legal profession should be standing for in our society. What about you? What's been your experience as a racialized lawyer in the Canadian legal profession? Please drop us a line to tell us your story. Have you experienced discrimination or exclusion in your law school or law firm because of your gender identity, sexual orientation, religion? color, or other cultural difference? On the other hand, how have you experienced inclusivity? We want to hear your stories. You can reach me on Twitter at at CBA underscore news, on Facebook, or on Instagram at at Canadian Bar Association. You can hear this podcast and others on our CBA channel, The Every Lawyer, on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, and Stitcher, wherever you listen to your podcasts. Please subscribe to receive notifications for new episodes, 
and please also leave us your review. And to hear us in French, listen to our Juris Branche podcast. Listen for us next time, when we will be speaking with CBA members who have been there, experienced that, and have stories to tell about it. Thank you.